team. I told them that this morning they sounded better than ever. And uh, I think one of the reasons for that is because uh, I am now consecrated, ordinated, and vaccinated. I got my vaccine. My category came up. Overweight, semi-retired pastors with naturally curly hair. So I went in and I told them, hit me with your best shot. And you know, you come out and, and the grass is greener and the sky is bluer. And then you realize, wait a minute, there is no green grass yet. And, and the sky is overcast. And, and some are concerned about side effects. I haven't noticed too many except for maybe a few involuntary hand movements. I just have to deal with that. Actually, a vaccine is a great excuse. I forgot our anniversary. How could I do that? It must be the Pfizer. So this morning, if you hear something in this message you disagree with, don't get mad at me. It's the vaccine. Well, I'm just using a little humor here to break the tension because people are really getting tense about this. On one side and the other, there's a lot of disagreement and a lot of controversy. And that's kind of typical for Baptists, right? Because if you put five Baptists in a room, you, you come up with six different opinions. But we Baptists have had a long history of agreeing to disagree and not hating each other or being judgmental towards each other. And I hope that's going to be true going forward because not everybody's going to agree. And we don't want to split off into different denominations. The vaccinated Pfizer Baptists and the unvaccinated Spirit-filled Baptists. We want to keep the unity. And for myself personally, just a little note here, when I heard all the controversy, I decided it wasn't helping, so I just turned off the noise, and I, decided, I said, decided to just start listening to God. Because I have the kind of relationship with God that if I don't know what's going on, if I'm confused, if I can't decide, then I say to him, look, I got an appointment, and if I'm not supposed to do this, make it clear to me. And he will do that. And often, like in this case, it's like God says to me, you know, it's your call. Because I can protect you either way. So this is just my own personal opinion about this. This is not church policy or anything else. This is just sort of what, uh, what I came through. And... Uh, we trust God with all aspects of our lives. We're so grateful that we've made it through the whole year and God has protected us and we pray for an even better year. And uh, hopefully we'll have many, many opportunities to interact and to hug and to reach out and love others. And maybe this vaccine will help in that regard. We hope so. Anyway, this is uh, Palm Sunday, and it, was, uh, it began with the most triumphant procession into the city of Jerusalem. But as the week went on, obviously, 
Some terrible things were happening before the great triumphant victory at the following Sunday. And so in preparation for this Easter, we've been looking at a couple of the disciples. Last week we talked about Judas, and today we're going to talk about Peter. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the fact that Jesus came. He actually emptied himself, made himself nothing, took on the form of a, of a servant, a slave, and came into the world to show us how much you loved us and how eager you were to save us. So Lord, we just want to enter into that and open our hearts to let the Holy Spirit speak to us through your word. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in that Passover week 2,000 years ago, which began with such hope and such triumph, we also saw developing the true condition of the sinful human heart in, at its very worst. And it was especially evident in the case of the two disciples, Judas and Peter. And in the first case, the prognosis was terminal. There was no hope. However, in the second, there was full recovery. So the question is, what made the difference for these two sinners who stood at the crossroads? Well, we'll focus on Simon Peter today as we try to answer that question. We know that Peter was the most vocal, the most eager, the most enthusiastic of the disciples. From the very beginning, Peter was all in. It says he left everything and followed Jesus. And what an adventure it was. I mean, there were healings, there were miracles, there were signs and wonders. And I mentioned the healings. There were even resurrections. Jesus was casting out demons. One time, Peter even walked on water. Only two people have ever done that. But for Peter, the best part, the best part of the whole thing was listening to Jesus teach. At a crossroads in his ministry, we read in John 6, 66, that from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. And it was Peter who spoke up. And he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You have the power, you can heal, but it's not that. It's your words. They give us life. I cannot imagine living without your words. I hope you've reached that point in your life where you realize that without the words of Christ, we just couldn't go on. It's your words. They bring us life. Peter loved the words. It's like David in the Old Testament. He wrote about... Uh, his love for the word of God, the law of the Lord is perfect. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandments of the Lord are radiant. The fear of the Lord is pure. The ordinance of the Lord are sure. Your word gives joy to our heart. It revives the soul. It makes the simple wise. 
It gives light to the eyes and it endures forever. It is altogether righteous. Your word is more precious than gold, than much pure gold and sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. David loved the word of God and so did Peter. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter was all in because of those words. Until Caesarea Philippi. That's when the one who spoke the words of life began to talk about death. For the first time, Peter did not love the words as much. Because that kind of thinking really groaned, was grinding his gears. So the pupil rebuked his teacher, No, Lord, this will never happen to you. Don't talk like that. The words that, that came out of Peter's mouth actually sounded very familiar to Jesus because this is what Satan had been repeatedly telling him. Your death is not necessary. There must be another way to save the lost. And it was as if Peter was saying, and yes, I approve this message. Now he had the best of intentions, but it was a trap intended to knock Jesus off course. So Jesus turned to Peter and said, out of my sight, Satan, you're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Wow. Well, that wasn't the only time that uh, Satan tried to get to Jesus through Peter. At the Last Supper, Jesus revealed that there was a traitor among them. He said, one of you will betray me. And the disciples were baffled, and all of them asked, well, I wonder who it is. Is it Peter? I wonder if it's Peter. No, they asked, Lord, is it me? Am I going to betray you? And that's when Jesus told Peter in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Peter was a rock, solid rock, but soon his convictions would crumble in the hands of Satan who would sift them like fine gravel, like grains of wheat. In Mark 14, verse 27, Jesus says, For all will fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Again, Peter objected to this. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, You yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Lord, you don't have to worry about me. I've got this. And I know just what to do. Our master needs a bodyguard. It's not going to be that hard to get a sword. 
And if the enemy tries anything, heads are going to roll. Peter had the best of intentions, and he tried his very best. When the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, Peter took a swing with all the force he could summon, hoping perhaps for a decapitation. But Peter was a better fisherman than a samurai. His aim was off three degrees to the left, and all he got was a piece of an ear, which meant it was on. This could have been a slaughter. If Jesus would not have intervened, Peter would have been lying face down in a pool of his own blood. So Jesus, after restoring the ear to its rightful owner, surrendered willingly and was taken into custody. But not before warning Peter, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. For the followers of Jesus, violence is not the way. And so Peter had utterly failed to protect Jesus. And it shook him to the depths of his being. His heroic plan was a disaster. But maybe there was still something he could do. So he followed the arresting officers at a safe distance, careful not to reveal his presence, until he ended up on stakeout outside the high priest's house. There was a fire pit in the courtyard, and Peter, incognito, blended into the scene, trying to remain invisible, not knowing what his next move might be. Unfortunately, his cover was blown. He was busted. Luke 22, verse 56, a servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked at him closely and said, this man was with him. He's the, he's the guy with the big mouth, always bragging and exaggerating. I'd know him anywhere. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. It's just a case of mistaken identity. I don't know him. Peter, how could you say that? Those are the final words that many will hear on the day of judgment. Depart from me. For I never knew you. By the way, do you know him? Oh, that was a close one. Peter, Peter breathed a sigh of relief. He was off the hook for now. But a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. It was emphatic. I don't know what you're talking about. Leave me alone and mind your own business. Well, that second denial bought Peter some time. He had about an hour to think over his testimony. Peter, you said you wouldn't disown him. You claimed you were willing to die. This is, this is serious business. This has eternal consequences. For Jesus said in Matthew 10, 33, whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Those are the words of Jesus, the words of life. Peter, I hope you get another chance to set the record straight. By the way, what's, what's that sound? That almost sounds like Someone is sifting wheat. 
Verse 59, about an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Those Galileans are nothing but troublemakers. They should arrest them all. And here Peter, under tremendous pressure, under enormous pressure, his survival instincts overrule his faith. And Peter says, man, I don't know what you're talking about. In Matthew 26, it gives even more about Peter's response. It says he began to call down curses on himself and he swore to them, I don't know the man. I swear by heaven and earth, I swear by my own life, I don't know the man. So Peter, is that your final answer? The words echoed around the courtyard and down the narrow streets. It even woke up some of the animals nearby. It says, just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And a procession bringing Jesus out of the house appeared. And it says, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the words the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside. And he wept bitterly. So the disciple who had denied himself to follow Jesus now denied Jesus three times. So three strikes and you're out. Peter went outside, wept bitterly, and then he went and hanged himself. That's what Judas did. When he saw how sinful his heart was, he totally despaired and went out and hanged himself. When he felt the full impact of his betrayal, he despaired and committed suicide. And I'm sure that Satan recommended the same strategy, exit strategy to Peter. But to his credit, Peter did not withdraw and isolate himself in despair. I think he remembered the words of Jesus, not just about the denial, but Jesus had also said, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Those were the words of life. Somehow, Peter found the other disciples, and together they hid in fear, knowing that they could be next. But at least they were together. Until the third day when they heard the good news. He's alive. He has risen. Don't look so surprised. He told us that he would be killed and raised on the third day. An angel had spoken to the women at the empty tomb in Mark chapter 6 verses 6 and 7. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus of Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go and tell the disciples and Peter. This is the gospel of Mark, which is interesting because the writer of Mark was himself a deserter. In fact, Paul fired him in the book of Acts and wouldn't give him another chance. 
But Mark was restored by Barnabas. And eventually he left his mark by writing one of the Gospels, which contains the record of Christ's life that Mark had learned from Peter. The Gospel of Mark is Peter's account of the life of Christ that he told Mark. And that's why there's a little detail here that the other Gospels don't contain. Jesus, or the, the angel said, go and tell the disciples and Peter. Wow. The resurrection had tremendous significance for all the disciples, but especially to Peter because his failure was far more serious. Tell the disciples and Peter. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Peter's failure was not fatal. This was not a career-ending disaster. The guy with the loud mouth, who was always exaggerating, always over-promising, could now be fully restored and would be able to use his experience to strengthen the church. And that's exactly what he did. For example, 1 Peter chapter 5, the letter that he wrote, verses 8 and 9. He says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Don't make the same mistake I made. Be alert, resist him, stand firm in the faith. Peter was fully restored. But Judas hanged himself in despair. What made the difference? Because there were many similarities here. Peter, who was sifted by Satan. Judas, who was possessed by Satan. One denied Christ, the other betrayed him. These were the two biggest sinners of that final week. Both did terrible things and both wept and both confessed their sins. And yet their guilt led them in opposite directions. And only one found forgiveness. So why is that? Well, I think the best explanation is found in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Chapter 7, verse 10, where it says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So Judas illustrates worldly sorrow over sin. And Peter illustrates godly sorrow. We know that Judas's betrayal was premeditated. It was carefully planned. Well, Peter also had a plan. His plan was to uh, do the opposite, to not betray Christ, no matter what. And although Peter's first denial was spontaneous, and then, oops, I did it again, he had about an hour to revise his testimony, but he couldn't do it. 
That is the treachery of the human heart. That is what sin looks like. We know that both men were seized by remorse. When Judas realized what he had done, he admitted, I have sinned for I have betrayed innocent blood. And we know that Peter must have confessed his crime because there wouldn't even be a record of his denial if he hadn't admitted it. You see, there were no other eyewitnesses. None of the disciples saw this happen. So Peter had to admit it. This is what I did. He told them the bitter truth, even though it would have ruined his reputation. In godly sorrow, Peter confessed. But his confession focused on how much his sin had hurt his Savior. Worldly sorrow is different. It's more about us. It's how the consequences of sin have hurt us. It's how life has disappointed us. It's what will people think about us. Worldly sorrow is heavily financed by self-pity. But it's a trap. Worldly sorrow pushes us away from God towards despair and darkness and death. And Judas is the one who displayed worldly sorrow. We know that because Judas was definitely a man of the world. That's why he spent all his time laying up treasures on earth. Judas had a worldly orientation. And who can blame him? Because the world can offer us so much. There's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, 30 pieces of silver... And Judas loved the world even more than he loved Jesus. He loved money more than he loved God. And so when he realized that Jesus was not going to make his dreams come true, that there would be no fame and fortune, that this wasn't about success, this was about suffering, Judas decided it was time to cut his losses and see how much he could salvage. So he disowned Jesus before men severed any connection with God and set up diplomatic relations with the powers and principalities of darkness. He took the road that seemed right. But then, afterwards, when Judas realized what he had done, how sinful he was, when he saw himself at his worst, the only thing left was whatever the world could offer him. And that was 30 pieces of silver. Because the road that seems right ends in death. You know, in the beginning, the world can offer us so many things. Amazon Prime, high-speed internet, dating apps, Pfizer vaccine. The world has so much to offer until it comes to sin. And then its deficiencies become apparent. The world can't offer us real hope or forgiveness or salvation or freedom from guilt because none of those commodities are at stock. They they are not manufactured locally. They have to be imported. What the world offers us is substitute. Instead of hope, they prescribe antidepressants. Instead of forgiveness, they offer us excuses. 
And as for salvation, maybe the closest they can come is, is vaccination. Now that's good, but ultimately it's not good enough. It's only temporary. And instead of freedom from guilt, the world offers, well, actually the world has nothing for that. The world has very little to offer those who have failed. And all the world could offer Judas was regret and a rope. Then Judas threw the money into the temple and he went away and hanged himself. Worldly sorrow brings death. In the end, the world can't give you life. Its final offer to you is death. That's why John writes, do not love the world or anything in the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Judas went out and hanged himself. Let me just say something about suicide because this, this has deeply impacted my ministry over the years. And, uh, there are some people who think that if a Christian commits suicide, that they are lost. And uh, I had to spend some time in prayer over that because I had to preside at the funeral of our worship leader who had committed suicide back in 1993. And uh, God showed me some things. And one thing that I learned was that not all Christians end in triumph and in victory. We get to heaven because we believe in Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. But sometimes there's things that happen that bring us into deep despair. And I know some believers who've committed suicide. Judas was not condemned because he hanged himself. He was condemned long before that. His suicide was simply the logical conclusion of the decisions he'd already made. There's a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And I, I, I saw this so clearly when I was uh, on chaplain duties at the Drummer Heller Penitentiary. I witnessed the dramatic difference. Because I noticed that the only crimes that the inmates regretted were the ones that had put them in prison. Those are the only ones they, they regretted. In fact, they would brag about all the times they weren't caught. They felt good about that. And that continued until a revival broke out. And the Holy Spirit showed up. And what a difference. I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. I had a communion service with six guys. And I thought, this is going to take half an hour. I've got places to go. I've got things to do. It took over three hours because the Holy Spirit had come. And these guys started confessing. And they were confessing all those things that they had not, never been caught for. And it took three hours just to process through all these things. And there were no excuses Lots of tears, genuine tears. And that night I saw six prisoners set free. Godly sorrow. 
It is so powerful and so healing because it gives us access to hope and to forgiveness and to restoration. In that same chapter in 2 Corinthians 7, in the very next verse, Paul says, See what godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what indignation, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. Godly sorrow is so powerful. And Paul says it doesn't even leave room for regret. There's no regret. Peter, who did a terrible thing, didn't have any regret. It was taken away because he had something far more important to do. Instead of wasting his time worrying about how terrible he was, he confessed that it was forgiven. He could now focus on strengthening the church. It is a powerful thing. Regret is a trap. We need to use our energy to do the will of God. Peter was fully restored to ministry. Yes, I, I did a terrible thing. That was my most embarrassing moment. So what else is new? That's me, the sinner. But look what God did with me. Once he de dealt with that sin, Saul of Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus did worse things than Peter. He even did worse things than Judas. He sent a hit squad to stone Stephen and then tried to destroy the New Testament church. But when he was saved, there was no lingering toxic residue of regret. Paul freely admitted his crimes. That's how bad I was. But it is Jesus who's changed my life. That's how great he is. It's not about me. It's about him. Godly sorrow leaves no regret. As embarrassing as it was, that's not the issue. What godly sorrow does, it releases love and gratefulness. We see that in the sinful woman in Luke chapter 7 who is forgiven by Jesus. And in gratitude, this repentant prostitute washed Jesus' feet with her tears, kissed them and dried them with her hair, and then poured perfume on them. This was an act of radical devotion, which Jesus explained in Luke 7, 47. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Those who have felt the full impact of forgiveness respond with great love. They can't help it. Because where sins were multiplied, God's grace immeasurably exceeds them all. And that is what spiritual health looks like. That is what freedom is all about. Some believe that this woman was Mary Magdalene. It's possible. If it was, then she had been demon-possessed. But look at her now. So if you ever want to know what healthy spirituality is all about, you just have to remember three words. Just three words. Peter, Paul, and Mary. Peter, the denier. Paul, the destroyer. And Mary, the demon-possessed. Three of the biggest failures in the New Testament 
who became three of the most powerful examples of God's amazing grace through Jesus Christ because of what Jesus did on the cross. And then he was raised on the third day. Peter, Paul, and Mary. There's no better example for sinners like us to follow, especially when we stand at the crossroads. Lord, we thank you that uh, Peter was fully restored. Thank you that when we are at our worst, because I can, I can testify to this because I experienced it. You loved me when I was at my very worst. You didn't give up on me. In fact, you offered me a ministry out of that. And that's just really amazing. And many others can testify to the same thing. And it's all because of Jesus. So Lord, we just want to be very careful about this. We want to be alert and self-controlled and not let Satan try to drive us away from you through disappointment, through frustration, through self-pity. We want everything in our life and especially our sin to drive us toward you because you're the one who has a solution. You're the one with forgiveness. You're the one with healing. That's what this week is all about. And we just, as people who have experiences, long for others to experience this as well. We pray this to your honor and glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. I'd just like to ask you to stand for the closing song. This is a song that reminds us that whatever happens in our life needs to happen in the context of our relationship to Jesus. When we walk in faith, we will fall like Peter did. But if we fall, let's fall towards Jesus. That's where hope and that's where healing is.